Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with mounting Russian preparations for war with Ukraine as Western diplomats and their families leave Kiev and the stock market drops a thousand points in anticipation of a war in Europe. Joining us is Anders Asland, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. A member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences, he worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. His books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. And we will discuss how much Russia's military-industrial complex and hawkish generals are driving the march to war and the extent to which countervailing economic interests from the kleptocrats with their money stashed abroad could offset the hawks who would like a new Cold War which would make them relevant again. Then, with the right-wing majority Supreme Court taking up a means to strike down affirmative action, which lawyers who were former clerks for Justice Clarence Thomas are arguing in a case against Harvard and UNC brought by a right-wing activist who was behind the Shelby County case in which the Roberts Court gutted voting rights. We'll speak with Kevin Carey, the Vice President for Education Policy and Knowledge Management at the New America Foundation, where he also directs the Education Policy Program. He's a regular contributor to The Upshot at The New York Times and the author of The End of College, Creating the Future of Learning and the University of Everywhere. Then finally, we'll look into how the politics of white grievance is infecting education as Texas bans books and Florida's Governor DeSantis pushes a bill aimed at the boogeyman of critical race theory that would prohibit Florida's public schools and private businesses from making people feel, quote, discomfort or guilt based on their race, sex or national origin. Joining us is Martin Carnoy, a professor of education at Stanford University School of Education and a labor economist with a special interest in the relationship between the economy and the educational system. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Anders Aslan, a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum and a professor at the Center for Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and serves as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anders Asland. Well, uh, Anders, Western diplomats and their families are being evacuated from Kiev, and it seems from the Biden administration there's an expectation that war is on the horizon and maybe there's not much that can be done to stop it based upon 
Biden's attitude at his recent press conference had seemed to be all but inevitable. At least that's what we're hearing from our side. What are you hearing in terms of what the mood is in Ukraine itself? Well, uh, what I'm hearing is that uh, people are preparing uh, for uh, war. They are finding out uh, where they can be safe, how they can evacuate uh, their families to uh, Western uh, uh, Ukraine, and that they have the necessary uh, emergency supplies. So what do you think is driving this? I mean, Fiona Hill has a piece in the New York Times going back to when Putin basically told George W. Bush that Ukraine is really a part of Russia and don't expand NATO. And of course, he was ignored. And also Putin said, don't go up, don't do the same with Georgia. And then shortly thereafter, there was a war with with Georgia. So it seems to be this has always been a red line for Putin. Is he trying to restore the Soviet Union, which is essentially the argument that Fiona Hill is putting forth in the New York Times? I think that uh, is the image that he wants to present. I think that the reality is that he's afraid of losing power in Russia, uh, that uh, he's an authoritarian uh, kleptocrat. And in order to stay in power, he thinks that he needs uh, a smaller victorious wars so that uh, he uses this image of uh, restoring uh, part of the Soviet Union in order to uh, get popularity. So... Is there, therefore, in terms of the power centers that Putin has to negotiate with, he's got the oligarchs and the business community on the one hand and the military-industrial complex and the generals on the other, and then within his own cabinet he's got hawks like uh, Nikolai Petrushev, etc. So is he being forced to choose between the two, the military-industrial complex or the business community, because the business community m- must understand that if they go to war, the sanctions will hurt them. I imagine that the military-industrial complex and the Russian generals, they would love to have a new Cold War. That would make them relevant again, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think that the important people here are really the top people in the uh, uh, Security Council, and that is, as you mentioned, uh, Nikolai Patrushev, the head of FSB, Alexander Portnikov and uh, Defense Minister Sergei Shoigo. And all these men are generous. Uh, the first uh, of them are K- KGB generous. Uh, they are all exactly as old as uh, Putin, uh, 69. And uh, then we have another group, and that is uh, the corrupt businessman, Putin's friend from uh, St. Petersburg, the brothers Rothenberg, Gennady Timchenko and Yuri Kavalchuk, who have made the money on corruption with Putin. We have very little understanding of if they control Putin or if Putin uh, uh, controls them. I think these are the two important groups. The broader circle of the businessmen uh, don't matter. matter. And uh, in terms of uh, military-industrial complex, they are quite uh, combined with uh, Putin's corrupt uh, businessmen. And the most important there is probably Sergei Chemisov, uh, an old friend of uh, Putin uh, from his time in uh, Dresden in the 1980s, also a, a senior K- a KGB officer. But are the, the money guys, the kleptocrats, 
do they recognize the consequences of a military action if indeed Biden and Europe remain cohesive and they push back and they sanction and they cut off the Russians from the SWIFT system and do all other kinds of stuff, including perhaps stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is a major source of revenue. I mean, I'm just trying to get a reality check, Anders. Yeah, I think that uh, we can see what really happened uh, from uh, the sanctioning of Putin's uh, four closest friends from St. Petersburg, uh, the businessman Rothenberg, Kovachuk and Timchenko in March uh, 2014. Then Putin complained no less than five times in public on major events that uh, this was against human rights that the U.S. Uh, uh, had sanctioned these uh, wonderful uh, people. So then Putin really showed his bleeding heart. And that, I suggest, uh, means that it really meant something to him. And there are other people in this uh, circle who have not been uh, sanctioned and who should uh, be sanctioned. I think that could bite uh, seriously on Putin. But... The other force, of course, the military-industrial complex, I spoke recently with Christopher Shivers, who was the National Intelligence Officer for Europe up until recently, and he suggested that there is a constituency in Russia that would welcome a war, and I'm assuming that he's referring to the military-industrial complex and the generals. It would make them more relevant again. They don't care about a permanent confrontation in Europe, do they? No. And also, most of these people are not allowed to travel to the West, according to Russian restrictions. There are about 4 million people in uniform who are not allowed uh, to travel. And therefore, they would not lose anything. Tourism in Russia has developed because of all these people who are prohibited uh, to travel. So they're not just physically sealed off, they're also mentally sealed off. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, very much so. And you can see this in terms of education, that uh, the oligarchs, uh, in broad terms, they send their kids to uh, study at the best uh, universities in uh, Britain and the US, uh, the Silaviki, the security people and military industrial uh, complex. They keep their uh, sons at uh, the best uh, uh, technical universities in uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow. And again, I'm speaking with Anders Asland, who's a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum and a professor at the Center of Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council a member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences. He worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and serves as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine. And his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. So I spoke yesterday to defense analyst in Moscow, Dr. Pavel Felgenhal, who went over some of the possible military scenarios of what Putin and the Russian military have in mind, and it's pretty scary. And, and there's a major buildup going on now in Belarus with Russian forces being deployed there. You've got the deployments of the already 100,000 on the eastern borders in the Donbass. Apparently, Russia's already sending in mercenaries into the Donbass. The most logical move probably would be for 
the Russians to move south from the Donbass through Maripol and then link up with Crimea because the Ukrainians have cut off the water supply to Crimea. But he also talked a lot about the massive naval build-up in the Black Sea and particularly with landing craft, etc., assault ships, and that he was suggesting that they could move literally from all, from the north, from Belarus, from the east, uh, through the Donbass, the south, down into Crimea, and on naval assaults into Mykolaiv and, and also Odessa, and then on the west from Transnistria. So it's got to be a nightmare for the Ukrainian military planners. They are obviously incredibly outmatched. What do you think they can do? I mean, obviously the intention, at least what Felgenhauer said, was that the Russians would try to do a pincer movement and surround the Ukrainian army in the east and capture them. What are you hearing in terms of military preparedness in Ukraine itself if these scenarios are being discussed openly as they were when I spoke yesterday with Felgenhauer? Yeah, indeed, uh, the response uh, is also being discussed uh, quite openly in Ukraine. So there is uh, fear that the Russians w- will do exactly what you suggested, do a pins of the moment, try to take as much uh, of the military assets as possible, take uh, uh, prisoners of uh, war, uh, bomb uh, all kinds of uh, military assets, uh, uh, bomb the airplanes on the on the, uh, the ground, and uh, people are talking about a possible Russian uh, uh, massive blitzkrieg attack uh, for something like two weeks, trying to get uh, uh, either President Zelensky uh, to give up and give in to Putin's demand. Uh, or uh, carry out a coup in uh, in Kiev and replace uh, President Zelensky with some kind of uh, uh, Russian uh, stooge. What the Ukrainians are then trying to do is to spread out the military uh, assets. There's now a strong emphasis on territorial defense over the whole c- country so that the military assets cannot be caught in one place new big concentrations of uh, of troops, but on the contrary, prepare for a, a guerrilla warfare with uh, 500,000 uh, soldiers spread over the whole country. And one of the things that Falkenhauer was saying uh, yesterday, Anders, was that the Russian military-industrial complex have never recovered from the breakup of the Soviet Union because Ukraine had so many important defense factories and that Russian military transports are grinding to a halt because they don't have the engines anymore that were produced in Ukraine, and that Russian destroyers and frigates don't have engines which were made in Mykolaiv in the factories there because they don't have the engines. So would it be possible for the Russians, and one, are they motivated to take back these factories, and two, would they, they'd want to take these factories intact, would they not? Yeah, uh, this is quite important. I checked the statistics. In uh, 2013, the last peaceful year, 38% of Ukraine's exports uh, to Russia was uh, machine-building products. And this is was almost entirely uh, military equipment. And the National Security Advisor of Ukraine several years ago 
told me that uh, Ukraine did not have a military industrial complex. It was part of the Soviet military industrial complex. So by and large, as you say, Ukraine produced parts uh, to uh, and important parts uh, to uh, the, the Russian military industrial complex. And the most important was probably Motorsich, the engineering company. So until 2014, all Russian helicopters had engines from Motorsich. Uh, and also many uh, airplanes. It's uh, located in Zaporizhia. When uh, uh, the Russians uh, took uh, uh, part of Donbass, they dismantled one of the Motorsich factories that was uh, located there and moved it, I think, to uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, the big uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles of the Soviet Union were produced at Yushmash in uh, Nipro, you mentioned the big uh, military transportation plane, Antonov. They are produced in uh, in uh, in Kiev. The big ship hulks uh, in Mykolaiv on the Black uh, Sea and in Kharkiv. Uh, uh, many different parts of uh, the Russian air defense uh, rockets, uh, S-300 and S-400, were produced. And of course, we don't know to what extent Russia has managed to replace this. Officially, they say that they have managed to, uh, to, to replace them, but that is uh, highly doubtful. So Ukraine was uh, very important for the uh, Russian military industrial complex. And obviously, these factories are, are still there and uh, f functional. And this is something that uh, the Russian military certainly would like to have. So is there at this point, given this kind of fatalism and, you know, we're having a somewhat fatalistic conversation as we speak, Anders, is there still any diplomatic possibility here to end this? Because a war in Europe is just a horrific prospect and it doesn't make a lot of sense. This whole thing has been brought about by Putin himself. This is entirely his doing. And as I mentioned earlier, the article in the New York Times by Fiona Hill indicates that this is exactly that Putin is really driving it. We're suggesting that there are other forces, some of them countervailing forces between the business community and the military industrial complex, but by and large, this is all being driven by Putin, and he doesn't have an opposition, he, does, he controls the press outright, and so he doesn't have to worry about anything except, as Biden said in his press conference, if he decides wakes up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning, we go to war. Is there any alternative? Uh, yes, I think there, there is an alternative. But it looks as if Putin has decided uh, to go to war. So the question is then, how can he be, stop be stopped? Well, the Ukrainians have it uh, clear that they are trying to organize as uh, strong a defense as they can. And they're also publicizing uh, how they are turning against the Russian like, likely attack, as, as I mentioned. The current defense minister in Ukraine, Alexei Reznikov, is extremely clever. It's one of the country's best lawyers and an excellent manager. So this is good. Ukraine has also, last summer, 
appointed new commanders for the military. These are youngish uh, commanders who have all war experience from, uh, from the, uh, Donbass uh, in the East, and many of them have uh, American training. So the Ukrainians are well prepared. Uh, what else? Well, the threat of sanctions is there. And of course, it's very good now that uh, the US, Britain, uh, uh, Canada, the three Baltic uh, countries, uh, even the Czech Republic, are now delivering arms uh, to, to, to Ukraine as fast, uh, fast as uh, they, they can. The US, uh, Britain and Canada have uh, military trainers uh, in place. Uh, these things matter. The best thing that could happen is that uh, Putin uh, resigns from his attempt to, to go into uh, Ukraine and uh, find some diplomatic face-saving device. Uh, uh, a new European security system needs to be discussed in, in any case, since most of the old uh, uh, arms control agreements uh, uh, have been abolished either by the, uh, the US or by, uh, by Russia. There needs to be, be better uh, security so that we, uh, and transparency so that we don't get uh, a war of uh, a mi mistake. An alternative a second scenario is that Russia uh, goes for cyber warfare and uh, manages to stay under the ribbon for which the West would declare full sanctions. And the third is a real war. But if it becomes a real war, few now believe that it will be an occupation war because the Ukrainians will fight. They are strongly com committed to the country. There's now a big majority for EU and NATO membership in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are good fighter and fighters, and they are not afraid. Well, Anders Aslan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Very nice to hear you, as always. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Anders Aslan, who's a senior fellow at the Stockholm Free World Forum, a professor at the Center of Eurasian, Russian and East European Studies at Georgetown University, and a former senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. A member of the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences, he worked as a Swedish diplomat in Moscow and served as an economic advisor to the governments of Russia and Ukraine, and his books include Ukraine, What Went Wrong and How to Fix It, and Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how the right-wing majority Supreme Court is now taking up the means to strike down affirmative action. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Kevin Carey, who is the Vice President for Education Policy and Knowledge Management at the New America Foundation, where he also directs the Education Policy Program. Previously, he worked as a Policy Director of Education Sector and as an analyst at the Education Trust and the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. A regular contributor to The Upshot at the New York Times, he's the author of The End of College, Creating the Future of Learning and the University of Everywhere. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Kevin Carey. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Supreme Court has taken up an affirmative action case involving the University of North Carolina and Harvard. They've actually skipped over the normal appeals court process in the UNC case, which would indicate to me that maybe the conservative justices who have a impregnable majority on this court have really decided to take this up uh, with a view to killing affirmative action. What's your sense? Um, that seems likely. I mean, there are, as we know, there's a six to three conservative uh, majority on the Supreme Court. And while all six of the Republican appointed justices aren't the same, um, and there have been some recent cases where um, in particular, Chief Justice Roberts and to a lesser extent, Justice Kavanaugh have sided with the three more liberal members. Um, Chief Justice Roberts has historically been quite uh, conservative on issues related to racial preferences and, in fact, has uh, authored some of the uh, previous Supreme Court cases uh, limiting the use of race in various educational contexts. It's also only been six years since the last time the Supreme Court ruled on affirmative action in a case involving the University of Texas in a five to four decision that Justice, then Justice Anthony Kennedy um, wrote the uh, uh, majority opinion for. Justice Kennedy has uh, since left. Uh, there are only uh, two members of the court, uh, or I guess three members, no, two members of the court because uh, Justice Kagan had to recuse herself from that case. There are only two members of the court uh, of those five uh, still on the court today. And so, uh, yeah, it seems like they wouldn't have taken the case if they didn't want to change the law. And this group that's bringing the case, the Students for Fair Admissions, apparently their legal team is led by lawyers who were law clerks for Justice Clarence Thomas. You know, the the, uh, the field of high-level Supreme Court appellate law is pretty incestuous. Um, you, 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 you almost don't get, the, get to come back to the Supreme Court unless you, you clerked for one of the justices at one point. I mean, and there is, of course, like some irony, uh, maybe more than a little, that the justices who are uh, primarily white people uh, all went to these very elite institutions. And uh, so they are they are the product of the institutions that they now seem to want to uh, be pushing back against in terms of their admissions policies. And this challenge also is being developed by this conservative activist, Edward Blum, who has long been opposed to affirmative action. And he's the character that engineered the lawsuit in the case of Shelby County versus Holder, where Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion overturning Section 5 of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So this reinforces what you just said, the sort of incestuous nature of these right-wing activists who seem to get fast-tracked to the Supreme Court. The most prominent of all, of course, is the case of Citizens United, which came to the court via a, a right-wing activist, David Bossie, who up until recently was uh, had a prominent position in the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, there is a real uh, strategy to Supreme Court jurisprudence, picking, picking certain kinds of cases with the very explicit aim of getting certain kinds of outcomes. And in this case, the uh, the angle that the litigants are taking is uh, was to sue on behalf of uh, Asian students, asserting that uh, Asian students were actually uh, a minority group that was being discriminated against 
in admissions rather than being given preferences for and saying that the use of the use of of race in giving uh, preferences to primarily black and uh, Latino students was having the effect of uh, creating a, a negative bias toward Asian students. And so I, I think it's been fairly clear based on the, the writings and, and political stance and, and public statements of the people backing this lawsuit was that the, you know, the ultimate aim was to um, eliminate racial, racial preferences of all kinds. Um, but that's sort of the new element that they are bringing to the, the table this time. And again, I'm speaking with Kevin Carey, who's the Vice President for Education Policy and Knowledge Management at the New America Foundation, where he also directs the Education Policy Program. Previously, he worked as a Policy Director of Education Sector and as an analyst at the Education Trust and the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. He's a regular contributor to The Upshot at The New York Times and the author of The End of College, Creating the Future of Learning and the University of Everywhere. Now, didn't Harvard just have a case brought by Asian students? Yeah, that's this case. So it's it's oh, being it's the same case. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I see. But they prevailed in that case, didn't they? Uh, they did, and so it's being appealed to the Supreme Court. So so Harvard did prevail. Um, you know, they 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 won the suit, um, and that's why it's being it's being uh, appealed to the Supreme Court in this case. So. The last bit of settled law then was, is that the 2016 4-3 decision upholding the admission program at the Uni- University of Texas? That's correct, yeah. And in that case, the three justices who voted in dissent in favor of abolishing affirmative action were Chief Justice John Roberts, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito. So now they've got well, three extras that are mm-hmm. yeah. appointed by Trump, right? So yes. wouldn't the writing be on the wall here? Uh, I, I think so. You know, again, I, particularly for a case that was so recently decided, it's it's very unusual. Although the, I mean, perhaps becoming less so, and it's you know notable that for many many years, the mantra among conservatives was that they opposed uh, quote judicial activism, the idea of uh, justices actively legislating from the bench. You don't hear so much about about people being concerned about judicial activism anymore. I guess that's what a six to three majority will give you. Um, so there, it's very it's very unlikely that the court would take up an issue that had been decided so recently, um, unless what they wanted to do was change their mind. Well, it is extraordinary that the conservatives are using some of these arguments when they've, for the longest time, going back to the Bucky case with the UC University of California Regents, the idea is what? that white people are being discriminated against, that they're being disadvantaged. Is that a kind of in the big category now that a big part of Trump's appeal and his constituency is, is white grievance? And just at his last rally in Arizona last Saturday, Trump actually made the statement that white people are at the back of the line when it comes to being treated for COVID. So is that the subtext here? Um, white I think grievance. It's the subtext. I think it's maybe the text at this point. <laughs> um, you know, and, and affirmative action policies are broadly not very popular. Um, I mean, there was a, a referendum in California just recently um, where the voters had an opportunity to uh, change what has has been the uh, University of California's uh, decades-long uh, policy, going back to a previous referendum outlawing the use of, of race and emissions and, and the voters chose to 
uh, reject that change. They, they, they voted to reject the uh, reinstatement of uh, race as an explicit admissions category at the public University of California system. So I, I think it both speaks to some of the more extreme elements of white racial grievance that are at the heart of Trumpism and and uh, you know broader uh, discomfort among the uh, public around um, race being used explicitly uh, to make certain kinds of high stakes decisions. Um, I think it, I mean, it is worth understanding that uh, going all the way back to the Baki case that you referenced in 1978, that decision outlawed the use of racial categories in order to provide uh, explicit like redress of uh, historical uh, racial inequality. So affirmative action is only legal if you're doing it in order to diversify your student body for educational reasons. You're not allowed to, under the Baki decision that now has been precedent for many decades, you're not allowed to uh, create uh, explicit numerical quotas for the number of uh, people of certain racial ethnic categories that you admit, nor are you allowed to make your decisions based on a, a, a explicit policy of, again, uh, redressing histor you know, historical grievances. I think that that does create some barriers to the court, not that the court won't just smash through them if that's what it wants to, but I think it's what the court has never been willing to do before now is to say to a Harvard or a UNC, we are going to um, uh, substitute our judgment for what constitutes a legitimate educational purpose and say that you are not allowed to explicitly pursue the goal of a diverse student body for educational reasons. I think that they would have to kind of get past that in order to to overrule affirmative action, because that's currently the foundation on which affirmative action rests from a legal standpoint. Well, in 2022, in the Federal Appeals Court in Boston, uh, the evidence that Harvard presented was that Harvard's freshman class is roughly one quarter Asian American, 16 percent black and 13 percent Hispanic. And if Harvard were to abandon race-conscious admissions, African-American and Hispanic representation would decline by nearly a half. So first of all, do you, do you agree with that reasoning? Um, I mean, I, I, I don't have any uh, reason to doubt Harvard's analysis of its own admission statistics. I mean, the, the whole point of the preferences that they are defending is to increase the percentage of uh, students from certain underrepresented backgrounds. So for them to say, if we didn't do it, then it would have a change is, I mean, is, is almost kind of evident on its face. That's the reason they're doing it. So if the Supreme Court gets rid of affirmative action across the board, that will be the consequence, right? And huge drop off in African-American Latino students entering Ivy League colleges. I mean, I, I just, I have questions about that. And here's why, you know, the, there is no formula for particularly at the very elite level. There is no mathematical formula employed by Harvard or any Ivy League college or you know, Stanford or MIT or any of the other like very elite institutions that produces a yes or no decision when it comes to applicants. These are institutions that, that have far more students who are qualified to attend them than they have room to admit. So they're always making very kind of complicated, holistic admissions decisions based on all kinds of factors that aren't encapsulated in grade point averages or SAT scores, which, by the way, you don't even have to submit anymore now that many institutions have gone test optional. And so I, 
I think that if, if you know, if the Supreme Court um, explicitly outlaws outlaws the explicit use of race as a factor, they will probably come back around to the freshman class they want via other means. There are lots of other things that they can point to legitimately that are the reasons that they um, make these decisions. And it's not like the Justice Department is sitting in the room when they are saying thumbs up or thumbs down. I don't know exactly what the government's ability is going to be to challenge them on, on what are both very educational and very tailored and non-mechanical decisions that they make. And the Justice Department has sided with Harvard and UNC, right? Uh, let me think about this. The Justice Department, uh, it's flipped back and forth. In, in the, the Trump administration, the Trump Justice Department um, was, uh, for obvious reasons, more uh, on the side of litigants. They actually were in the process of helping them on a different set of lawsuits um, where they were suing Yale. Um, but I, I don't believe that the uh, Justice Department now is, is on, I, I believe you are correct, they are on the, on the, the side of the universities. Well, the Texas Attorney General Paxton, he's joining in the challenge against Harvard's affirmative action policies at the Supreme Court, and he says that divvying us up by race is a sordid business. Well, my God, <laughs> that's pretty rich, coming from the guy who's being sued for securities fraud and who had a rich donor pay off his mistress. So... I don't know. I mean, I guess I, that's not exactly relevant, I suppose. It just makes me feel that this is a sordid political game that's being played here at the expense of the education of minorities in this country. Uh, well, and I mean, yeah, notably, what is not being litigated are the various ways that we essentially have affirmative action for white people in college admissions, so, legacy admissions. For example, Harvard is a multi-century old institution. For most of that period, only white people were allowed to attend. And, and you know, the so the, there is a, a huge base of, of wealth and social privilege, all of which uh, is given preference explicitly if you're a legacy in the admissions uh, process. It's well known that donors get a, a, a leg up in the admissions process if you write a large enough check. That's how Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, got into Harvard. His father essentially paid his way in. Well, who has all the money to write these big checks? White people. You also get a, a leg up in admissions if you're good at certain kinds of sports that are uh, tend to be popular in certain uh, very wealthy, very white enclaves. So if you're a good squash player or a lacrosse player or a, you know, if you're good at sailing, for example, you know, one of the coaches that was caught up in the Operation uh, Varsity Blues admissions bribery scandal was the sailing coach at Stanford um, who was given money in order to you know, provide an admissions preference for someone. Well, how many people from uh, middle and lower class, lower income, African-American and Hispanic communities are good at sailing? So all of these structures that privilege white people will remain intact. And the one uh, uh, structure that uh, moves things in the other direction is now at risk. So it, it is the idea that somehow people are appealing to anti-racism as the justification for that, I think that's sorted. It's a, it's almost a new level of hypocrisy. And just in closing, Kevin, what you're talking about, of course, is very much a part of this new movie, King Richard, about the father of mm -hmm. Venus and Serena Williams and 
how tennis was such a white sport and yep. uh, it really deals with these white sort of country clubs where these two black girls were clearly out of place. Really an excellent movie, by the way. Um, but I digress. So just in closing, what can be done if the Supreme Court rules the way that we expect it to, which is to strike down affirmative action? Well, uh, I mean, we are a, a nation of laws. And so, um, you know, the Supreme Court, Supreme Court rulings matter. Um, and I think that they will limit institutions. And I, I think the effects, as I said, I, I imagine that uh, very, very elite institutions, um, particularly private nonprofit institutions, um, will find ways to continue to admit the kinds of students that they want to admit um, just by uh, uh, less explicitly race conscious, racially conscious means, um, but only to an extent. I'm, I'm sure it will have an effect. And I think there are other um, institutions particularly public universities that, again, do operate on more of a, a formulaic basis. Um, they are more open and accessible and accountable to the public. They may just you know, be forced to all go the way of California, um, uh, states like Texas, for example. Um, and, you know, what that just means is that the the existing chasm we have in society, the wealth divide that we have among white people and people of color in America, which is the, the cumulative result of decades and centuries of structural racism and discrimination will be reinforced and magnified because that's what wealth does. It it finds ways to pass itself down from generation to generation. And uh, our elite higher education system is one of the ways that that happens. Um, and it can either be a force to uh, reverse that kind of inherited privilege or to continue it. And I think this will make it more likely to do the latter. Well, Kevin Carey, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's great to be here. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Kevin Carey, who's a vice president for education policy and knowledge management at the New America Foundation, where he also directs the education policy program. Previously, he worked as a policy director of education sector and as an analyst at the Education Trust and the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And he's a regular contributor to The Upshot at The New York Times and the author of The End of College, Creating the Future of Learning and the University of Everywhere. We can take a brief station break. We're back looking into how the politics of white grievance is infecting education as Texas bans books and Florida Governor DeSantis pushes a bill aimed at the boogeyman of critical race theory. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Martin Carnoy, who is a professor of education at Stanford University School of Education and a labor economist with a special interest in the relations between the economy and the education system. Welcome to Background Briefing, Martin Carnoy. Thank you. So we have, of course, the Supreme Court deciding to take up the... Uh, affirmative action case, and being such a right-wing Supreme Court, they get to choose, the Chief Justice gets to choose what they take up, and they've clearly taken this case up because they want to take a stand, and I think it's reasonable to assume that they will strike down affirmative action. 
But they're also, in the political world of right-wing politics, it seems to be part and parcel of what's going on with affirmative action. The governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, is backing a bill that would prohibit Florida's public schools and private businesses from making people feel discomfort or guilt based on their race, sex, and national origin. And he has named this bill Individual Freedom, and it's really designed to go after critical race theory, which he's mentioned many times on the stump. Uh, Even though critical race theory is not taught in classes, it's become a kind of catchphrase for the conservatives. And DeSantis refers to it as state-sanctioned racism and creating a hostile work environment. So as a professor of education and as someone who studies education, how much is it being politicized in general in terms of this idea of white grievance? Well, first of all, let me just say that the education system has always been highly politicized because it is a place of a political conflict like every other institution in society. So the point that race should and identity issues should enter into the educational system should not be surprising. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the backlash against a Black Lives Matter movement, which uh, had a tremendous political effect in 2018 by mobilizing Democrats and uh, uh, actually tilting the Congress, the House, in favor of the Democrats, and then I think contributed also to the big turnout in 2020. So since education is a, is a place where middle-class parents Uh, white middle-class parents uh, who are shifting over to Democrats, particularly women, uh, to take this educational issue at the school level. Now, this is to do with the Supreme Court at the college level, but at the school level is a kind of a clever uh, Republican ploy to backlash against uh, the idea that uh, somehow the United States has been unfavorable to blacks historically, and that that should be part of the curriculum to try to get a better handle on uh, racial relations. Uh, It's uh, unfortunate, uh, but racial identity is an important political issue. It's not only in the United States, but all over the world. As far as the Supreme Court taking up this decision, I think this is pretty interesting because As you know, the latest uh, Supreme Court decision, which I believe was back in 2016, was basically decided against racial quotas, but did uphold the idea that uh, universities could use race as one of many criteria in order to admit students with the idea of creating diversity. If, if that's what they wanted in their student bodies. So uh, you're, I think you're quite right. The, the, present super, the current Supreme Court is probably going to overthrow that idea as well. And again, I'm speaking with Martin Carnoy, professor of education at Stanford University School of Education and a labor economist with a special interest in the relationship between the economy and the educational system. So how far will we go in this country 
in terms of of politicizing education and sanitizing history. For example, will we still be able to teach about slavery, about Jim Crow? I mean, how far... They're burning books in Texas and banning them as well, particularly banning anything that has to do with critical race theory, again, which is a, a lie. It's not taught universally. It's a legal theory as opposed to a part of the educational curriculum. So should we be concerned then that we're heading in a kind of war on facts and truth. We already have that in the broader political environment where we're in post-truth America. So how much do you see it encroaching on education? I think it's a, a real possibility. And I think, as you say, it's very unfortunate because it does sanitize uh, history in favor of, a, in favor of <clears throat> white Europeans. But What's really strange about this is that although it focuses on on black issues, which is, uh, uh, I think, the typical way that the pendulum swings on these issues, uh, race is a crucial issue in American history. And unfortunately, uh, the idea of eliminating a discussion, an honest discussion, of what happened historically in the United States, and by the way, in other countries as well, is sets back the hope uh, that we can be- become a peaceful, unified, multiracial, multi-ethnic society, which is what we are. And by the way, even in the case of white Europeans, uh, <laughs> there were some very conflictual uh, history around uh, Protestants versus Catholics, which developed in the form of anti-Irish and anti-Italian sentiment going back to the 19th century and the Know Nothing movement. And by the way, the Ku Klux Klan, which started as an anti-Catholic organization, not an anti-Black organization. So uh, all of these things that have tended to uh, divide people in the country uh, and I think exacerbate treating people, uh, despite the claims of the conservatives uh, and DeSantis, that that by speaking about race, you in fact divide people into racial categories. Not speaking about race even makes it worse because the fact is the condition that we're in is that we have a history in which different racial and ethnic groups were discriminated against. And by the way, gender also. Are we not supposed to discuss gender inequality uh, as well? I mean, these are facts, not ideological positions, but they're being turned into ideological positions, saying that you can't discuss these facts because, in fact, in some form or another, they uh, hurt a group that identifies itself as uh, whatever, white, European, Protestant, it doesn't really matter that you can't discuss any differences because that hurts a group that feels that uh, it's been in power for a long time and therefore and doesn't want to lose its favorite position. I, it's going to be, it's going to set, set us back. And the Supreme Court, of course, has contributed to this in various ways by essentially eliminating the voting Uh, rights act that the states 
had to submit their election laws to the court in order to make sure that they weren't discriminating. That went down, I believe, in 2012. And then uh, since then, the refusal of the court to deal with uh, what's happening now at the state level. So this now extends to the whole issue of racial discussion of uh, racial discrimination and ethnic discrimination in the United States. All of that sets back bringing us together in an intelligent and more unified way. I think a lot has to do with uh, social class inequality that has been increasing over the years and that white working class has been uh, standing still for the most part since the late 70s in terms of their economic situation. And so the Republicans have been able to pick up the identity issue uh, at the same time that they've been responsible for creating these incredible social class inequalities through uh, tax laws which favor the rich and the government basically uh, not taking any position on trying to correct these inequalities. So it's not a good situation. Well, it'll get worse, though, won't it? I mean, this ruling won't come down until 2023, I believe, but still it looks inevitable that they'll, uh, the Supreme Court will abolish affirmative action. But already, in this case being brought against UNC and, and Harvard, in effect, they're trying to turn Asian Americans against blacks and Latinos. That's at the heart of it. They're saying that giving a helping hand to blacks and Latinos is at the expense of Asians. So they're already playing racial divisive well, politics. Well, I totally agree with you that it is turning. It is the idea. And, and this, by the way, is part of a much longer run uh, strategy that has been going on since uh, Madisonian times back in the 18, early, early 19th century. Uh, of basically creating interest groups and pitting them against each other. But the interesting thing about the whole affirmative action case is that the idea is that grades, uh, and particularly test scores, are the sole criteria by which uh, people should be admitted into anything, whether it's jobs or uh, universities or whatever that uh, these so-called measures of merit, if, if um, uh, the interesting thing is that someone like Billy Bean in Moneyball essentially disrupted using non-usual statistics to gauge baseball players, uh, disrupted the way teams organize themselves in baseball in order to maximize their output. There's, for years, criteria were used to gauge baseball players which Billy Bean and a guy named James with his statistics basically upset that whole apicot. Now, you know, I sit on admissions committees all the time. And the fact is that there's a lot more to a person than simply uh, uh, test scores and grades. I'll give you a very good example of this. In the early 1980s, might have been 1980 itself, 40 years ago, the Stanford Law School decided to admit 11% of the class of the class, not based 
who were below the LSAT, which is the entrance test into law schools, they took 11% class of people who did not qualify for Stanford Law School based on the cutoff that Stanford used on the LSAT. Those 11% ended up with higher than average grades in law school and a greater likelihood, greater than average likelihood of being on law review, which is the law school, uh, which is a criterion of excellence in law school. So it turns out that the reason that they didn't do this before was because it's more costly. You got to look at applications more carefully. You have to see if people had excelled in other ways besides mm-hmm. their test scores. So this is, it's, it's completely silly to say to universities, oh, you can only admit people on base of test scores and grades. And if someone has other attributes that you want to include in your university, or you believe that you have a different way of gauging quality of people, you're not allowed to use that. You're not allowed to use that because we say that this is the only fair and objective way to do that. That's nonsense. That's just nonsense from the get-go. Nobody does that. Business doesn't do it. If business, I mean, look at all the people you'd miss if, if you would just use single criteria, single or dual criteria for gauging whom you hire, et cetera. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. There's, there's grit, there's uh, persistence, there's ability to overcome adversity, all these kinds of things enter into people's success. Many students are more determined than others to get ahead. Certainly a black student who has been able to overcome a lot of adversity in terms of the quality of the schools they attend, et cetera, and manages, manages somehow to get into the Harvard or the University of North Carolina pool, it should be considered as having attributes that an upper middle class white student might not have, attributes which can contribute to their future success. I don't get this at all, where this comes from. It's, it's, It's utter stupidity. Nobody does this. Well, Martin Cano, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Okay, thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Martin Cano. He's a professor of education at Stanford University School of Education and a labor economist with a special interest in the relationship between the economy and the educational system. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. 
Bye for now. Disappeared by half